0: That invites you to turn again to that passage we just read earlier from Leviticus chapter 9. Some people would find this a difficult chapter, a difficult book. You get into the Levitical system of worship, dictated very clearly by the Lord. It certainly shows us, and this is a lesson that carries over into uh, the New Testament era, that you cannot worship God just any way you please. That's a common notion today. A common notion that you can have Christ on your terms and not his. As if you're doing him a favor to let him save your soul. Oh, so much Wrong thinking today, wrong perspective. But very detailed system of worship that the Lord uh, gave to the Israelites. And one of the reasons, I might say, that the Lord was very meticulous in how this worship was to be conducted is because it all pointed to Christ. Christ. It was a picture of Christ. It was not the Lord simply being strict for the sake of strictness, although he certainly does have that prerogative. But to mar the worship, to alter the worship, to modify the worship was to mar the picture, the picture of Christ. And that God simply could not have, nor should the people of God want. So I won't take the time to read the entire chapter again, but let me uh, just read for you verses 5 and 6. And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do And the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Look at verse 6 again. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. What is the highest attainment a man can reach? That is, when can a man say, This is it, I've arrived. I suppose you could find a variety of answers to that question depending on what you do and what you're trying to accomplish. The man who's involved in business might answer by saying, I know I've arrived when I become the CEO of the corporation. I call the shots. I formulate the strategy, the, the strategy that causes profits to soar. I have arrived when corporate investors are so confident in my ability to take the company forward, that our stock prices go through the roof and rise to untold heights. The athlete might answer it a different way. I know I've arrived when I become a pro. And not only a pro, but I arrive when I make the starting lineup and lead my team to the championship. And on and on it goes. I've arrived when I've won an Academy Award. I've arrived when I've won five gold medals. I've arrived when I've made the scientific discovery that revolutionizes an industry or creates the cure for some disease. I've arrived when I'm elected to the highest office in the land. But what about the Christian? What is the highest attainment he can achieve? When can it be said of him that he has arrived? Well, I believe our text this morning reveals to us what I only know to describe as the highest attainment of the Christian life. And it doesn't really pertain to our vocations or our activities. Look again at the text, verse 6. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Beholding the glory of the Lord... This is the highest attainment in the Christian life. And I think I can say that authoritatively based on God's word. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The highest attainment, then, in the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is, of course, accomplished when Christ returns. Then we shall see him. Then we shall be like him. Can you rise any higher than that? Now I'll grant you that this high spiritual attainment pertains to an occasion that we don't have any control over. How can we aim for such a thing? How can we strive for something that is so far beyond us and will only occur when Christ at last is revealed from heaven in all his glory? And the answer is that we can and we should aim and strive for it now by striving to see now with the eye of faith what we will one day see with the eye of our risen and glorified bodies. Now we see through a glass darkly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. And that text tells us that we can behold his glory And we can behold it now, but we can only behold it by striving to see it. When you look through a glass darkly, you see. You do see, but you have to strive to see more clearly and more fully. And as we strive to behold him with all our hearts, He is pleased to let more and more of the light of his glorious presence break through upon our hearts. We find numerous instances throughout the history of redemption that the Lord was pleased to reveal his glory. Moses beheld the glory of the Lord in the mount in answer to his prayer in Exodus 33 and verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. One of my favorite Old Testament passages. You should underscore that in your Bible. And you should make a note somewhere nearby that says, here is the right practice of spiritual ambition. To behold God in his glory. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Isaiah beheld his glory. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, Isaiah 6 and verse 1. The apostle Paul beheld his glory on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. John, the beloved apostle, beheld his glory on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. And you know, we have the accounts of all these things. And we have the privilege, therefore, of sharing into the experience of those that saw his glory. Our text today shows us that the Lord is not reluctant to reveal his glory to any of his his redeemed ones. You don't have to be a Moses or an Isaiah to see his glory on some rare and unusual occasion. In fact, the Lord himself holds out to us a very simple formula for beholding his glory. Now, I'm not one who believes as a general rule in simple formula sermons. There's too many of them, and I don't know that they necessarily work. But in this case, if the Lord is giving the formula, then I suggest that we should pay careful attention to it. And notice again, The words of verse 6. This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do. Okay, so there's something here that calls for the people of God to do something. This is the thing the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Now in Leviticus 9, the order for worship has been established. The priests have been consecrated. The divinely ordained pattern of worship begins. We have read this morning how following the various offerings here prescribed, the glory of the Lord did appear in accordance with this promise. And in verse 24, we read, There came a fire out from before the Lord, and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do. Well, what did he command? And what do we today need to do? How can we arrive at this highest of spiritual attainments in this sin-cursed world? Well, I want you to look at this divine prescription this morning, and I want you to set your aim high. Oh, how we need to practice spiritual ambition. I don't think there's enough spiritual ambition among God's people today. And that has such an important part to play, not only in your own life, but in the example that you set for your children. Can your children see in you spiritual ambition? What should they see in you? What sort of ambition should they see? Well, let's look at this prescription this morning. And like I say, set your aim high. Yea, may the spirit of the Lord direct us himself as we consider what we must do in order to behold the glory of the Lord. What we must do in order to behold the glory of the Lord. Consider with me, first of all, we must acknowledge the reality of sin. That seems like kind of a tough beginning, doesn't it? Um, I want to behold the glory of the Lord, and you're telling me I have to deal with sin? Well, yeah, that's the very first thing, and the passage makes that bountifully clear. Look with me in uh, chapter 9 at verses 2 and 3. And notice, here's the first thing that they're commanded to do. Here's what they must do. They are on the pathway to beholding the Lord's glory. Here's what they must do. And here, rightly understood, we find what we must do. Look at what it says, verse 2. And he said unto Aaron, this is Moses now speaking to Aaron at the direction of the Lord Take thee a young calf for a sin offering. And a ram for a burnt offering, without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, for a burnt offering. When it comes to worship, And especially when it comes to beholding the glory of the Lord, the first thing necessary is for sin to be acknowledged and for sin to be dealt with. The very first thing in the order here, isn't it, is the sin offering. The sin offering came first. Aaron must first offer the sin offering for himself. The people must first have the sin offering offered for them. And the order is appropriate here. After all, it is sin that comes between us and God. It is sin that hinders us from seeing the Lord's glory. If there's no solution to sin, then there is no beholding the Lord's glory. Now in the book of Leviticus... And this is that book which goes into such uh, great detail when it comes to the worship of Christ. In this book, the Lord is very careful to show how deep and how widespread sin has become and how it must be dealt with earnestly before the Lord. Look back with me if you would. You have your Bibles open before you, and I hope you do look back with me a few chapters to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. And let me highlight some verses out of of this chapter. Beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin, let me pause there and then let's jump down a few verses, down to verse 13. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, jump down then to verse 22, When a ruler hath sinned and done somewhat through ignorance. And then look at verse 27. And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, while he doeth something uh, somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty... So here you see mentioned over and over again, don't you, sin? Sins of ignorance are being singled out here. The priest, the congregation, the ruler, common people. It certainly illustrates what Paul says to the Romans and what we all know to be true, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one Religious rank does not exempt the person from the sin offering. Aaron must first offer for himself. He's the high priest, and yet he must offer for himself. Political power does not put a man above the power of sin. The ruler must offer the sin offering. Neither does lowliness of position provide a way of escape from sin. The common people... The humble farmer, the craftsman, the housewife, all must offer the sin offering, from the least to the greatest, right across the board in every vocation. Sin, you see, is universal in its extent. The whole man was affected by the fall, and the entire human race was affected by the fall. Would you behold the glory of the Lord's then you must first identify the cause as to why that glory is hidden in the first place. Sin is the cause. Sin is the occasion for the offering. And not only does the book of Leviticus deal with the universal extent of sin, but it deals with every kind of sin also. In chapter 4, the emphasis is on sins committed through ignorance. When you think about it, that's probably the largest category of sins that we commit. I once heard a preacher on the radio who was preaching on the subject of guilt. He was dealing with various kinds of guilt, but his chief concern was about what he termed false guilt. It seems that we have enough to worry about without blaming ourselves for something that we are not guilty of. After all, we don't want our self-esteem to slip any further than it needs to. I suppose he reasoned. But in his analysis, he left out a category completely. The category of sins committed through ignorance. The sin offering was for sins committed through ignorance. The trespass offering was offered for presumptuous sins, sins we deliberately commit. Things like lying and stealing, etc. This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you, our text says. Sin robs God of His glory. Indeed, sin defiles God's glory, and it robs us of God. If we would see His glory then, sin must be confronted and acknowledged and repented of and put under the blood of Christ. It's utter folly to skip the sin offering. Without the sin offering, we are wholly unprepared to meet with God. We dare not behold his glory apart from the sin offering. Our God is a consuming fire, we're told in Scripture. And the fire of God's wrath burns against sin. It's utter folly to skip the sin offering because that offering points us to Christ, our sin bearer. Oh, the occasion for the offering is sin. But we are not left to dwell indefinitely upon sin. The hand of the offerer, you see, was placed upon the head of the animal, picturing the imputation of the offerer's guilt to the sacrifice. Then the animal was slain, picturing the truth that sin brings death. And the blood was applied to the horns of the altar and the rest of the blood was poured at the base of the altar and the fat was burned upon the altar and then atonement was made and forgiveness was obtained. So with Christ we read, He was made sin for us who knew no sin. Our sins have been imputed to Him and He was slain. And his blood was shed, and atonement has been made. What must we do to behold his glory? We must, with the eye of faith, see him as our sin-bearer. See him as your substitute. Be mindful that sin brought him to the place of death, and sin called for the shedding of his blood, and with the shedding of his blood there is remission for sins. We begin then to behold his glory when we see in him the fulfillment of the sin offering. But not only must we deal with sin in order to behold his glory, but consider with me next, secondly, we must appreciate the grounds for our acceptance. We must appreciate the grounds of our acceptance. And this brings us to the second offering that is mentioned in close connection with the sin offering, which is the burnt offering. Immediately after the sin offering in close connection with it, the burnt offering would follow. Now I have to admit that for the longest time the burnt offering used to puzzle me. The other offerings aren't hard to analyze. The sin offering is named after that which occasions the offering, sin. The peace offering is named after the effect produced by the offering. And in each case there is an animal slain and burnt on the altar. But the question naturally arises, why then a burnt offering, and why is it titled a burnt offering? It doesn't seem to be distinct from the others except that it's named for something that most of the offerings had in common. It was burnt. Burnt on the altar. I like what Andrew Bonner says about the burnt offering in his commentary on Leviticus. He notes that the offerings first spoken of in Leviticus 1, are those that are to be wholly consumed. Types of complete exhaustion of wrath. In these cases, everything about the animal was consumed. Sinews, horns, bones, hoof, the wool on the sheep's head, and the hair on the goat's beard. They were called whole burnt offerings, which in Hebrew signifies that which goes up. Or in other words, that which ascends to God. The burnt offering, it seems, had a peculiar direction toward God. The sin offering and the peace offering have peculiar references toward man, but the burnt offering had a peculiar reference toward God himself. It would serve, in a sense, to remind God, and certainly to remind the offerer also, that there was grounds for acceptance based on the sacrifice, or more particularly, there was grounds for acceptance based on the sacrifice of Christ, the one the burnt offering pointed to. The message of the burnt offering, very simply, is that sin calls for wrath. The flames of the altar would serve to visually represent the truth that sin calls for the flames of hell. Sin deserves wrath. This offering, you know, was not designed to be attractive to the eye. Like the sin offering, the hand of the offerer would be placed on the head of the animal, picturing imputation of guilt. The animal would then be slain. The skin would then be torn from off the slain animal, demonstrating the complete exposure of the victim, uncovered and laid open to the piercing eye of the beholder. This flaying or stripping away of the animal's skin seems to show that there is no covering of inherent righteousness on the person of the sinner. While the skin was unwounded, the inward parts were safe from the knife. Thus, so long as man had personal righteousness interposing, no knife could pierce his soul. But the taking away of the victim's skin showed that the sinner had no such protection in God's view, even as the bringing of such skins to Adam and Eve after the fall showed that God saw them to be destitute of every covering and had in his mercy provided clothing for them by means of sacrifice. The blood of the animal would be sprinkled round about the altar and the animal would next be cut in pieces, leaving the sacrifice a mangled mass of flesh and bones bathed in blood. entire dislocation of every joint and separation of every limb and member was the process. Such was the sacrifice on which the fire came, thus exhibiting in symbol the original and immutable sentence, Thou shalt die. The burnt offering actually presents more to the eye than its fulfillment in Christ. When it came time for Christ to bear the unbearable, When it came time for Christ to be exposed to the full fury of his Father's wrath, a veil of darkness must be drawn across the scene from the 6th to the ninth hour. We cannot see through this dark glass into sufferings and wrath that so far exceed what can be expressed in words that not even God himself would attempt to describe it in holy writ. Through the picture presented to us in the burnt offering we are able to perceive that the sufferings of Christ are indeed terrible to behold. This is the thing which the Lord commanded ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. When you look away to that which the burnt offering pictures, then you are beholding the glory of the Lord. Dr. Cairns used to make that a point of emphasis quite often during his pulpit ministry. You want the best revelation of the glory of the Lord? Look to Christ on the cross. There is where all the attributes of God converge and demonstrate the glory of God. One of my favorite theologians of the past, Hugh Martin, a Free Church of Scotland minister during the 1800s has suggested in his book on the atonement that there's actually more power in the death of Christ than there is in the resurrection of Christ. Behold, he writes, the conspiracy that is leveled against Christ. The kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord. Hatred toward Christ becomes the bond that brings Herod and Pilate together. The Jews are added to the conspiracy. They call in loud voices for his crucifixion. We have to believe that the devil is part of the conspiracy. Christ is fulfilling the very earliest prophecy that the devil would bruise his heel. We cannot imagine what satanic cruelties provided the fulfillment of that statement in Genesis, but we can see clearly that the conspiracy against Christ is strong. The Jews, the Gentiles, the rulers, the rabble coming together to do away with Christ, to crush him if that were possible. But as strong as these forces may be, how much stronger do they become when God the Father, in a strange and mysterious way, seems to unite with them against his Son? Thus, the forces of earth and heaven and hell have all come together against Christ. The cruelest form of hell's injustice combined with the strictest form of heaven's pure justice unleashed upon the one who is the antitype of the burnt offering. And Christ does more than just endure these combined forces. All the while he's hanging on the cross, he is busily engaged in the activity of the priest. And what was the priest's activity? It was to offer the sacrifice and intercede for the people. And so do we find Christ engaged in that very activity from Calvary's cross. He offers himself. He intercedes for the salvation of his people. And such is the glory of his might that he is able to outlast and outlive all the forces that have come together to crush him until at last he can make a glorious announcement. It is finished. He wins. He outlives and outlasts all of the forces of heaven, earth, and hell. And atonement is made. And redemption is accomplished. And the wrath of God is appeased because the justice of God has been satisfied. Instead of the flames consuming the sacrifice, this is a point Ian Paisley used to make, When you have those animal sacrifices, uh, most often, in fact all the time, the sacrifice was consumed by the flames. But now in the case of Christ, you find the sacrifice consuming the flames. The flames consumed by the sacrifice. This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. What must we do we must see that sin is the occasion for the offering and we must see that the grounds for our acceptance is based on Christ who is the fulfillment of the burnt offering. Let's behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world and let's glory in all that was accomplished through his atoning death. Oh, we must acknowledge the reality of sin We appreciate the grounds for our acceptance. Consider, finally, that to behold the glory of the Lord, we must appropriate the benefits of redemption. There must be personal appropriation of the benefits of that sacrifice. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. And he brought the meat offering. And this is one of those King James words now. Uh, I suppose just about every other modern English version would translate it the grain offering. That's what's in view here. He brought the meat or the grain offering, took a handful thereof and burnt it upon the altar beside the burnt sacrifice of the morning. He slew also the bullock, And the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood, which he sprinkled upon the altar round about. Note again the order here. The sin offering and the burnt offering was made for Aaron and his sons. Then the sin offering and the burnt offering was made for the people. And following those offerings, we read how the meat or the grain offering was offered, a handful of fine flour mixed with oil burnt on the altar beside the burnt sacrifice of the morning. The meat offering was the offerer's act of consecration to the Lord. It was the offerer's way of presenting himself to the one who had just atoned for his sins. The grain represented the offerer's person and property, his body and his possessions. When he had, by the burnt offering, obtained full acceptance for his soul, he comes next to give up his whole substance to the Lord who has redeemed him. The mercies of God constrain him to give up all that he has to the Lord Ye are not your own, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for ye are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. This offering, or more to the point, this act of consecration, really tests a man's understanding of the gospel. If you truly understand what sin deserves and you truly appreciate that Christ interposed his blood to redeem you, then this act of consecration becomes the natural and spontaneous desire of the heart. How often have you heard from various sinners this response to the gospel? You mean I can do anything I want as a Christian? Because salvation is free, to which I'm inclined to imply, to to reply, yes, that's exactly what I mean. But now here comes the question. What do you want to do? What now do you want to do? Given what you've learned of yourself and what you've learned of Christ's provision, If you truly believe that hell was your portion and you justly deserved hell, but that God has graciously intervened to save you, then the only reasonable response of the heart would be to confess to God... Lord, I belong to you. All I have is yours. All I do from this point on, I want to do for you. I want to serve thee. I want to live for thee. I want to be consecrated to thee. Lord, I owe you everything. I was lost and undone. I was headed for hell, and you rescued me. Oh, Lord, I owe you everything I am and everything I have. If the benefits of redemption have been truly appropriated by faith, then this consecration will not be a forced issue. It will come quite naturally. We sometimes fail to emphasize this truth because there's so much emphasis placed on it in some Christian circles without near enough emphasis being placed on the grounds for it, which is the person and work of Christ. What I want you to know this morning is that the one leads spiritually to the other. Do you believe in the gospel this morning? If you do, then I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12:1 and 2. And I think you could say that corresponds uh, quite uh, nicely, if I can use that word, with the meat offering or the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 9. An act of consecration. And finally, there follows the peace offering. Another sacrifice in which the animal is slain, the blood is sprinkled round about the altar, the fat is burned upon the altar. And so you might say we've come full circle, as it were. The worshiper has acknowledged his sins. He's imputed them to the sacrifice. He has seen what sin calls for, death, even the shedding of blood. He has seen the fire consume the burnt offering. He is reminded that sin calls for wrath, but he is also reminded of the doctrine of substitution. The sacrifice has received what he himself deserved. And on the grounds of that sacrifice, or really on the grounds of Christ's sacrifice, pictured by those animal sacrifices, the offerer is accepted. His sins are forgiven. God has been satisfied. And now the offerer can serve God. And now he can be at peace. And so Christ himself says in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Oh, there is no peace like the peace of having your conscience purged from dead works to serve the living God. There is no peace like the peace of knowing that you're justified, that God's justice is satisfied in Christ's death for you. Those words of Christ tell us that the world can give peace too. But it's an altogether different kind of peace. What kind of peace does the world give? How does the world attain peace? It does so by trying to suppress the voice of conscience. Turn up the sound system so I can't hear the condemning voice of my conscience. That's how the sinner reasons. Apply drugs and drink to my body so that my conscience may be made numb. But the sinner's action only adds to the weight of his guilt and only contributes in the long run to the degree of his anxiety and distress. But look away now to Jesus and see in him God's remedy for sin. See him as your substitute. I love the emphasis that Bonner places on the voluntary nature of the burnt offering. He writes, There must be a willing soul. None but a soul made willing in the day of his power pays any regard to atonement. The Lord allows all that are willing to come to the atoning provision. Are you thirsty for the living God? For yonder altar sacrifice, might some son of Aaron say to a fearful soul? The fearful conscience replies, I cannot well tell if I be really thirsty for him. But are you then willing to go to yonder altar? Yes, I am. Then you may come. For read Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3 and see that it is neither riches nor poverty, moral attainment nor deep experience, but simply a conscience willing to be bathed in atonement that is spoken of by the God of Israel. The gospel warrant very simply is this. Whosoever will, let him come. So, worship is set in order. The emphasis is predominantly upon Christ. The worshiper is led in different ways to behold Christ. And when this was done, we read in the end of the chapter that there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Verse 24 they beheld the glory of the Lord. Can we expect the same thing? To behold Christ in his atoning death certainly is to behold the glory of the Lord. But when our hearts are sensitive to our sin and his glory and the truth of the gospel, then you can expect to see his glory everywhere. His brightness will shine through everything we see And every circumstance we encounter will be conscious of his presence and his love. Indeed, that love which moved him to love us all the way to Calvary's cross will be shed abroad in our hearts. That will be the impact of seeing him with the eye of faith. This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. And what does this command amount to? Simply put, it amounts to looking to Christ with the eye of faith. Oh, may every soul here behold his glory, even this day. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that everything in the Old Testament pictured Christ. We thank thee for the glorious truths that are so clearly presented in these pictures, one dying in our place, one absorbing the wrath of God for us, just as satisfied O Lord, we thank Thee that this all pointed to Thee, and we thank Thee for successfully fulfilling every one of these animal sacrifices by Thy grace and by Thy power. O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt strengthen our faith to behold Christ in the written word. May we indeed behold His glory, and Lord, if there are those that are here today who have not yet appropriated this great salvation, please strive with them. Please convict them of their sins. Please convince them of their need. Please compel them to come to Christ and grant that salvation may be wrought. And Lord, as those of us here who do believe in Christ, contemplate these glorious truths, May we be all the more conformed to the image of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.